So I've been uh, preaching through the book of Acts. Yeah. This is actually my sixth sermon. I'm doing a, uh, uh, I'm doing a, uh, a study of the book of Acts. Um, it's a great book. As I've been studying the book of Acts more and more, uh, I realize how important it is in church planning. Very low. Just kidding. Um, I, you know, it, it, it's, it's so, it's so, when you, when we, I, I've read the book of Acts many times. I read the book of Acts. Every time I go on missions, our missions director, Lisa, would tell us to read the book of Acts. I'm like, all right, I'll read the book of Acts. But as I really go into it and as I really study it, I realize how powerful it is. And it's a, it's a history. And, and not just history, it's our heritage. As believers in Jesus Christ, as the church, the book of Acts is our heritage. And it's, it was, it's like the link of the gospels, how the gospel is actually linked to us. Right? We're, all, we're all a part of what's happening. And, and what happened in Acts is just the beginning of, of the mighty work of God that happened. The, the thing that he orchestrated from the beginning of time to bring the bride of Christ into being. And so as I study it, you know, this is my sixth sermon. I don't know how long I'm going to be preaching from Acts. If things go the way it does, I, it might be like, I might go through the whole thing. And meaning that it's going to be like, if, if it takes me, if it took me like three months to preach two chapters, that means you guys are hearing Acts for a while. Um, I don't know. I might, I might uh, put, put it on hold for a while. But today I want to continue in the book of Acts and pick up right where we left off last week. Last week, we, we left up at, at the end of Peter's sermon. Peter was preaching, and, and 3,000 of people were added to their numbers. And it was a powerful sermon. It was a very, uh, the sermon that uh, kind of resonates with us and how we could be relevant. And my last sermon was about how, how we, as, as, as people of Christ, could be relevant in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, if you guys want to hear it, you guys can look back. You can listen to my podcast. All of our podcasts that comes from all of our preachers through all three campuses can be found on our website newphilly.cc under media. It goes back all the way to 2007. And, and you can listen to my, my testimony of me like, crying, all that. It's all recorded. So you can go back and listen to all the sermons. I encourage you to go back and, and kind of t- take a, a look at uh, what I've been preaching on in the book of Acts. But we're going to read from verse 42 of chapter 2, Acts 2, verse 42, and on to the end of the chapter. Okay? Uh, we, I'm going to read it in the ESV. I'll read one verse, and then you guys follow with the next verse. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, when I, when I, when I read this and I kind of did a study, a lot of people, many scholars and theologians, they think this is like a depiction of, of the, the, the perfect church. Some scholars go as far as saying that it's a model church, that this is the epitome of what the church should be like, you know, the perfect church, you know, the purest church. However, I beg to differ. The first church I was raised up in Jerusalem, it was not a perfect church. By no means. 
It had its flaws. It had its weaknesses. Okay? For one thing, it was ethnocentric. You know, when th- at this moment, all of these Christians believed that only Jews can be saved. Now, it wasn't until later on that the Gentiles were added to their numbers. You know, they, they actually had issues with doctrine. You know, like they believed that you know, circumcision was a part of salvation. You know what I mean? And it wasn't until like Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council that all of this kind of was resolved. Uh, they were meeting every day. Not practical. And that's not going to last. Man. There's like day by day. I mean, every day they're meeting in the temple courts. You know, see, people were selling their possessions and belongings and giving them to people in need. Sounds good. But is that what God really calls us to do? You know, like, okay, I'm going to sell all my stuff and give it to you. But, oh, wait, I don't have anything now. What do I do? Uh, well, at least I have my job. Wait, I'm meeting at the temple courts every day. I haven't been working in months. You know, that's an over-exaggeration of kind of what's happening, but... But I'm not wrong in saying that the church that was birthed in Jerusalem was not a perfect church. It had its flaws. It had its weaknesses. It had its shortcomings. But like churches we see, in, it's like a lot like the churches that we see today. No church is perfect. New Philly, we, we have our weaknesses too. We have our shortcomings. What I see when I first see the church that came about in Jerusalem is a church in its honeymoon stage. Honeymoons are great, right? How many of y'all are married in here? Honeymoons are great. Fantastic. No? Everything's great. Money's not an issue. And when, when, when me and me, Pastor Mina, we got married, like our, our wedding didn't cost that much. But we were like, she's you know, she, she a little spoiled. She's like, well, I want to go on a good honeymoon. And so you know, I, I had saved up a lot of money. Like, like, and it all went to her. Like, uh, like I saved a lot of money. And then I was like, all right, we'll just... Go on this, and our our honeymoon was fat. It was like it was, our our hotel had a bed like the like like a size of like a like this whole area right here, like huge. I was standing on one end, and she was standing on the other, and we'd be like, "Hey, how are you doing over there?" Our our the like the doors to our bathrooms were like twenty feet tall, and we had like three tubs, and it was great, you know. And in that stage, it's like money's not an object, you know. It's everything's great, no problems, nothing annoys you about your spouse, their quirks and their little idiosyncrasies. And their little, their little habits are adorable. He snores? Oh, how cute. Even though there may be issues under the surface, you can't see it because it's that time where everything is great. Everything's fantastic. And all couples need this time. They need this time. This perfect, romantic, money, money ain't a thing. It's all about you. you know, your belly look barbecued. These moments where, you know, it's just, it's just you and you. It's like that honeymoon stage. But like all good marriages, though there may be the issues that need to be dealt with in the future, there needs to be certain prerequisite things that are given, essential, imperative, indispensable things that need to be present at the honeymoon that needs to continue on from there. 20, 30 years from now when you're all wrinkled, Things that are sagging, things that are fatter, things that are missing. <laughs> you, you need the, the th- there are certain things that need to be present at the honeymoon that needs to follow you 30, 40 years down the road. Love, proper communication, respect, mm-hmm. chemistry, attraction, those little tingly feelings that you get in your heart. You know, th- th- these things need to be at the honeymoon. If, 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 if you're, you know, it's, it's, there's a problem where in your first day in your honeymoon, 
and your husband is ignoring you, goes off and plays the slots all day, or goes off to the bars and goes drinking for a couple of hours. The first thing, no, no together time, no communication. Something's wrong right there. Right? And when we look at this church, the first church that came together in Jerusalem, there are there's, there, there were imperative things, things essential to what a church is that was being birthed at this place. Yeah, they were, it wasn't a perfect church. We can't model ourselves after this church saying that this is the epitome of a perfect church because they had their weaknesses. They had their flaws. But they also had these intrinsic things, these imperative things that was birthed at this time that still needs to be in our churches today. No church is perfect. Just like no person is perfect except for Jesus Christ. And no one, not one church is meant to reach everyone. And it's not for us to say that one church is better than another church. But in a church, I believe that these things need to be, these things need to be happening. For it to be a healthy, spirit-filled church. So for, what does it say in the last passage? And the Lord added to their numbers day by day, those who are being saved. For to be a church that's growing, you need these things. You know, and some of these things are very obvious, easy to understand, and a few of them are more hidden. And I'm going to bring them out. And a lot, the obvious, one of the obvious ones, when we read right off the beginning, is it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. It means that they studied the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Not just the Word of God, but right doctrine concerning the Word of God. You know, yes, I mentioned that they, they were a little bit, like they were, little, they were off on their doctrine a little bit at the beginning. But this is also the church that would go and study the Word of God. That would study the apostles' teachings being led by the Holy Spirit, and they would ultimately establish proper doctrine in Christianity. And these things are the apostles that are, that are what later on would become the inspired word of God in the form of the New Testament. They came from studying the word of God. Studying it, learning it, teaching it. And let me tell you, no spirit-filled church could be called spirit-filled if they're not in the word of God. You know, at, at New Philly, we, we, we tend to get kind of labeled as charismatic. Because we are a little bit on the charismatic side. You know, we, you know, we're prophetic. We're a prophetic church. We believe in prophecy. believe in tongues. We move in the gifts of the Spirit and the works of the Holy Spirit. But it's kind of sad when people hear the word char- charismatic and they automatically assume that the church is not rooted in the Bible. Yes, it may be true that charismatics in the past were once accused of being more experiential-based than Bible-based. You know, but let me tell you, we may be a church that moves in the charismatic gifts, Mm -hmm. but we are first and foremost a church that's rooted in the Word of God. We didn't become a church that decided to follow a certain denomination because other people thought that it was right Mm -hmm. or because other people thought that it was more popular. But we became New Philly by studying the Word of God. By searching scripture, studying doctrine, and finding, finding a, a sound understanding of how we are supposed to be a believer, how we are supposed to seek the Lord, how we are to worship, and how we are to be a church. And when you look at our whole core values, they're all biblical. When you look at our sonship, the paradigm, it's all biblical. When you look at how we move in spiritual gifts, it's biblical. 
prophecy. Here in New Philly, you know, we're very prophetic. In the past, the gift of prophecy was almost removed from the church because it could be very dangerous. And people are abusing it. But you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Pastor Christian says that a lot. You don't just, just because you bathe the baby and the water's dirty, you don't throw out the baby. Prophecy is, a biblical, is biblical and it's a gift from God that gives the church power to edify, exhort, and to lead us. Do we get rid of it altogether just because it's dangerous? No. We go to the Word of God. We go to the, what the Word of God says. We make sure that all prophecies are correctable by the Word of God. And we always make sure what spirit is this word of, is prophetic word coming, coming in. We base things on the Word of God. When we see theology like cessationism, cessationism is the belief that the spiritual gifts, miracle signs and wonders ended after the apostles. We, we look at it with the Word of God. We see that what the Word of God says about all this. You know, they say that God used to do things, but now He chooses not to do it. He can do it, but He chooses not to do it. And we say, where is that in the Bible? So, like, show us biblically when all this stopped. We look at things not based on what people say. We look at things not based on how, how people, people feel about things. But we base things on the Word of God. And as a true spirit-filled church, that's what you got to be doing. If you want to be a spirit-filled church, you got to be more biblical. You got to find things in the Bible. You got to find things in the Word of God. We weigh it to the Word of God. We weigh everything to the Word of God. And the first point of my sermon seems like the second point of my last sermon because it's very important. The Bible is very important, y'all. If you're going to be a believer in Jesus Christ, you got to know this. You got to know it in and out. And if you're going to teach Jesus Christ, you got to know this. You got to know it in and out. It's very important. To be a spirit-filled church, you have to be rooted in the Word of God. Number two, another essential aspect of a spirit-filled church is fellowship. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship. And, you know, this word gets thrown around in churches a lot. Oh, fellowship here. You know, we're going to go and grab a bite to eat. Let's fellowship. Although that can be a form of fellowship, you know, after service, we're going we're to go eat at Sharky's. And then af- after that, a lot of us, we go to my house and we watch K-pop star. <laughs> Best show on earth. <laughs> and if you guys want to come, you guys are all invited. You know? We don't care. We love K-pop star. As long as you vote for Andrew Choi, <laughs> who is my friend, we're like this. Um, although, you know, getting together, going to eat and, and hanging out in my house, Watching K-pop star, it could be fellowship. Fellowship is so much more than that. You know that? It's so much deeper than that. But true meaning of fellowship is so much more. It's not more, it's not about playing together. It's not about hanging out. But when we look at these men and women, they decided to follow Christ. Many of them were most likely rejected by, by their families and friends. You know, their faith probably made them outcasts. For these men, fellowship went beyond hanging out. It meant survival. And it meant being invested in each other's lives. 
being invested in each other's livelihoods. It says that they sold their belongings to take care of each other. Fellowship to them meant belonging to one another. Meeting each other's needs. That was commitment in fellowship. You guys know that? And for true fellowship to happen, there needs to be commitment. The Greek word used for fellowship is koinonia. And we use it a lot. We have it in our, in our schools and stuff. You know, like we, have a, we had a group in our school. It's a koinonia. And everybody came together in fellowship. It means fellowship, association, community, communion, joint participation, intercourse. We will go down. It says intimacy. We as a spirit-filled church, we need to redefine what fellowship really is. Yeah, it could mean hanging out and watching K-pop star, watching Wreck-It Ralph. But it's so much more than that. There needs to be a commitment there. True fellowship is being committed to each other in love. True fellowship, there's investment of time and effort. Investment into people's lives. And that's what we see in this first church. We see people that are invested in each other's lives. And that's what we need for our churches today. If you want to be a spirit-filled church, y'all need to get invested in each other's lives. It can't be all about me. It can't be me and my wife, me and my kids. No, it's about the community. You've got to invest yourself into the community, just like the community is investing itself into you. One of the things that we encourage our congregation to do is join membership. So in the announcement, I have joint, we have a membership class coming up. In membership, there's a commitment there. It's a covenant. Like how God made a covenant with Abraham. And when he, when he did, he was saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to invest myself in you. I am being fully invested in what happens to you, Abraham. And now I want you to be committed in what I'm doing. And in the same way, when you join membership, it's belonging. It's a commitment there. From a community to you and you into the community. And some of you are saying, well, do I have to join membership? To have fellowship with you guys? And the answer is, of course not. Even if you are not a member, we will love you. We will accept you. We will worship with you. And we'll have fellowship with you. But what happens when you join membership isn't that we'll treat you better or love you more. But what happens when you join membership is you allow yourself to commit to us. And you allow us to now have a deeper commitment with you. And what happens with you? You are allowing us to commit to your spiritual growth. You're allowing us to commit to your maturity and to your breakthrough. We're committed in seeing that in you. And you know what? We're committed to seeing that in you even if you're not a member. Like, of course. You, know, you don't join a member. We still want you to grow. We still want you to, to be a, you know, like growing Christ, growing the knowledge of Christ. But you allow it to go much, so much deeper when you, when you make that commitment. It's not about what we do. It's about what you do. When you make that commitment, it's you saying, I want to go deeper. When, when, when you join, join members, it's like, you know what? I want to make a commitment to this fellowship. I want it to mean something. I want it to, 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 like, I want it to be meaningful. And, and you know what? In our churches today, we, we don't see that a lot. We see people come to a church, man, this is great. Everybody likes me. And then at the side of any, any kind of confrontation or any kind of, you know, correction, they're like, oh, man, I don't like this. Why are you all trying to get into my life? Peace, I'm gone. And there's no commitment there. 
And you're never going to find true fellowship. You can't hop around from church to church and expect for you to find true fellowship. But there needs to be a commitment. There needs to be a vulnerability, transparency. These things need to be a part of your fellowship. A third thing that we see is prayer. This is one of those easy answers. Growing up in church, when you went to Sunday school and the teacher asked you a question, you have about a 50% chance of getting it right if you said prayer. Prayer. You're right. But it's because it is true. Prayer is such a big part of our lives. Prayer needs to be such a big part of your lives. A spirit-filled church needs to pray. Jesus said what? My house should be a house of? Yes, not pancakes. My house should be a house of prayer. And so based on Jesus' definition, if your church isn't praying, you're not his house. You know that? Based on what he said, this is the words of Jesus Christ himself. Based on what is his definition of what, a, what his house is, if you're not praying, if your house isn't praying, you're not a house of God. The Spirit-filled church not only prays, but teaches their people to pray. Here in New Philly, we say that, you know, when you come out to church, you pray, that's good. But if this is the only praying that happens in your life, when you come to church, when you come to prayer meetings, and you go home and you don't pray, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, yeah, we have Sunday swim. Yeah, we have Friday fire. Yeah, we have joint prayer meetings. But you also need your closet prayer meeting. The prayer movement isn't just in corporate faith. The prayer movement is sustained in your prayer closets. In your personal prayer with God. You need a healthy prayer life in both areas. You know, in order to have a full, like a stereo sound. You know, some of you guys know about stereo, car stereos. In order to have a full stereo sound, you can't just have only bass. Or all treble. But you need a balance of both. I remember when I was in high school, people would just get 12-inch kickers. Boom, boom. You can't tell what song they're listening to. What song is that? I don't know. Gum, gum. It's like that, man. But in order for there to be harmony, you need to have both. You need both treble and bass. You need both prayer closet time and you also need corporate faith. You need that community time where you're coming together in prayer. But you also need that time when you're just, it's just you and God saying, God, I'm getting convicted right now, man. <laughs> Holy Spirit, thank you. You need, you need both. In order for there to be harmony, you need to be doing both. And, and, and a spirit-filled church is a church that prays. A house of God, a house of the Lord is a house that prays. Amen? Amen. Moving on, it says in verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belonging, belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And when we read this, some people argue that the church should be more communistic. There's no such thing as private property. We should sell all our things. Give it all to the, to the greater, greater body of Christ. Everything belongs to the community. Or some argue for socialism. 
But what's happening here in Acts isn't Luke trying to advocate a new economic system. This is people reacting to a situation. It said that the you know it says that the phrase "all things in common" is a common phrase borrowed from Greek philo- like philosophy. And back then, Greek you know the, the, the Greek philosophers they believed that when they said "all things in common," it was like saying like they were friends, friendship. And they didn't merely attend church together, but that they were such good friends that they were they were sharing everything. And and so this isn't in in this verse it, we're not talking about communism. But what it's talking about is the things that's depicted in the in the Bible from the beginning. What God said in the in the Old Testament, in in the Torah. Is that, am I pronouncing that right? Torah. Somebody people say Torah. I say Torah. But this is what God's been saying. This is God's definition of an economic system. I'm gonna read to you Leviticus 19:10. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourners. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 25, 35, 37. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger a, a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but, but, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest nor give him your food for profit. Now, a few months ago, Pastor Christian did this amazing series on finances, on how to steward, how to be a, a proper steward. And, you know, I encourage you guys to go back and listen to that. And if, you, if some of you guys have money issues, go back and listen to that. You know what I mean? And it, it was a powerful word. And it was like, I think it's a combination of like six sermons. But it really brought a great revelation on how we are to handle our finances, how we are, as biblically, in the Word of God, how we are supposed to... Consider our money and consider our, our faith. We're supposed to be stewards of what gives us, God gives us. But what I want to pull from this, this part of Scripture in Acts is that the first church was practicing generosity. And what we need in our churches, we need generosity. We need people practicing generosity. First, 2 Corinthians 9-7, Each one must give as he had decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in, in the ways we must help the weak and remember the word of the Lord of, of the Lord Jesus, who himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. After Pastor Christian, uh, Christian sermons, we developed the Financial Restoration Fellowship. It's basically a fellowship fund that we we gather at the beginning of each month, and we use that to to protect our covenant community from poverty. You know, and a lot of times there's people like, yeah, I send money to Africa. I send money to, to all these different places. And, but the people that are in your community, people that are in your, in your, in your direct community are starving. Yeah. And so this is a way to protect our, protect this church from that. And it, this, this will, this it is biblical guys. It's, it's found in the word of God. Basically says, man, if you have an abundance of something and one of your brothers is lacking, you can get well, give it to him. God calls us to, to be stewards of what he entrusts to us. And as people of God, what he entrusts with us can't just be for ourselves. It says in the gospel that we can't serve two masters. We can't serve both money and God. But so many times, money has such a strong grip on us, right? And when I was weak in my faith, man, money was like, man, money. I need money. 
I, I, I save money. I got to save my money. Because it will protect me mm-hmm. when things get rough. Yeah. Everything's great with God. Life is great. You walk, your walk with God is great. And all of a sudden, something happens to your finance, and you're like, ah, oh, what's going on, God? Don't you love me anymore? Well, what am I going to do? And in those times, some of you guys find out where your faith is. Mm-hmm. In God or in money. God calls you, the church, to be generous. Not because he needs money. You think God needs your money? You think God needs your, your offering and your tithe? No. God doesn't need all the gold, all the silver. Everything belongs to the Lord. God doesn't need your money. No, it says all, it, is, it all belongs to him. He doesn't need your money, but he calls you to give. He calls you to be generous so that money won't have its hold on you. So that you serve him and not money. So some of you young people need a healthy understanding of what giving is. It's not about you losing money, but it's about money losing its hold on you. God calls the church to be generous. And it's what we see in this first church. They were generous. They were giving. Next, it says in verse 47 that they were praising God. They were worshiping. It was the first worship leader was born. Some, they were all like, some of them were like singing, reciting the Psalms. And one of them got up and said, oh, but the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. And it's other people like, yes, that's true. And they start singing along. And they start worshiping God. You know, and, and these psalms, which were written hundreds of years before by King David, all of a sudden, it started to make sense for them. Mm-hmm. It started to be like a worship in their hearts. They couldn't help it. It started to flow out of them. Right, right. Man, this is what David was talking about when he wrote this. This is, this is why he was writing. This is, what, this is what he was crying out about. This is why he built the tabernacle of David to worship the Lord yeah. 24-7. And they found himself worshiping and praising God. Because it was a natural response when the people of God comes into the presence of God. His spirit comes into the presence of him. And we worship him extravagantly, amen. You know, our first core value, our first core value is the one that, it was like, man, this is the first one. We can never, we can never not do this. Boom. Worship extravagantly. Our first core value is be extravagant in worship. Yeah. Let me tell you, a church that's spirit-filled needs to be extravagant in worship. Mm-hmm. We got to be worshiping. It, 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 the place that our heart is at needs to be like, it, hey, I can't help it. This worship is just coming out of me because I'm so filled with the spirit. I'm so filled with what God has for me, his love, his presence. Ah, Lord, I love you. Lord, I lift your name on high. It has to just, it, it, it has to be extravagant. We have to worship in Him in spirit and in truth. Amen? And like I said, we don't worship God because He needs it. As if God needs our praise for Him to feel good about Himself. No. We praise Him because He is worthy. And we praise Him because He inhabits the praises of His people. As he inhabits the praises of his people, we draw closer to him. We find ourselves in his presence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We find ourselves being ministered to him. That's yeah. what worship is about. 
We don't have a God that's like has power, that's power hungry. That's like, worship me because it makes me feel better. I'm an English teacher like that sometimes. You're going to smile when I teach you. Nah, God doesn't need our, he doesn't need us to validate him. He's God. He is God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He created all things. He's perfect. Just him by himself Mm -hmm. is perfect. And then he, he, he calls us through worship to come into his presence. That's what worship is. It's about you. It's about you being connected to the one thing that could give you life. How amazing is that? And that needs to be done extravagantly. We can't be stingy about our worship. Because when you're stingy about your worship is when you're going to be stingy about your love. When you're stingy about your worship is when you're going to be stingy with your brothers and sisters. But you got to be connected with, as you connect yourself with God in that place of worship, man, you get, that's when you're, when you're, when, when, when God is working in you, the spirit, the spirit is, act, is, is active in you. That's what worship is, brothers and sisters. And this is what, ha- this is what was happening. In this first year, they're worshiping God. People were rejecting them. People were, were, were casting them out, and yet they were praising him. Moving on, it says that the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. They were an evangelistic church. They were preaching. They were testifying. They were doing what Christ told them to do. In such a way that people were coming to, their, their, to them daily. They were coming to the Lord daily. And a healthy, spirit-filled church needs to be reaching out to the community. Yeah. It can't be just about yourself. That's right, but it needs to be about reaching out. Connecting with the lost. Connecting with the unsaved. Mm-hmm. Most, of, most of you guys know about my crazy past. My drugs, prison, all that jazz. One of the reasons, you know, one of the, but one of the reasons I got this so disillusioned with church was that I would go for months and not come into a, like, an engaging conversation with a non-Christian. I was so immersed in this Christian community. I was going to a Christian university. I was going to Biola. I was immersed into, like, all my friends are Christians. And then when I went to church, everybody was a Christian. And everybody I, I taught, I was telling them to be a Christian all of a sudden, I would, could go, I could go like a month. I could probably go a year without com- not coming into any kind of engagement with a non-Christian. I got really disillusioned. But I, I'm you, a lot of churches in America, a lot of churches here today are like that. They have no concept of what the lost is like. Because they're never engaging them. They have no idea how to engage them because they don't know what they're about. They're great at meeting other Christians. Oh, you're Christian. Hey, how are you doing? Jesus Christ, yeah. <laughs> but they have, no, they have no way, they don't know how to act when they come to a bunch of people that are getting drunk or a bunch of people that are, that, that, that are you know, hanging out, partying. They go in, they're like, they're like, oh, man, what do I do? I'm just going to go over here. But it's because they lost sight of what God's commanded us to do is yeah. to be an outreaching church, to reach right. out. To touch their lives. It doesn't mean that they have to go and convert everybody. Mm-hmm. But they got to know that Jesus exists. They got to know that Jesus exists in me. Yeah. So when they see me, they see Jesus. Mm-hmm. The person of Jesus is alive in me. That's right. Yeah. And you need... Come on. They need that in a, in a church that's spiritual. You need to be reaching out. Mm-hmm. The Word of God says in John 17... 
It's a Jesus' high and priestly prayer to the disciples. It's, it's for us. And he says that we are not of this world because he is not of this world. But that he's sending us into the world. We are to be in this world, but not of the world. But we are to be in this world. <laughs> not in this, like, this place that's like, oh, it's a world, but it's just a world of us. Yeah. We're supposed to be emerged into this world. We're supposed to be in the thick of it. Yes, sir. We, we, we are to be in this world, and, but when we're not of this world, people will, people will start seeing us. Mm. They'll, they'll, they'll see Jesus. And this is what the church in Jerusalem, they were in this world. Everybody around them had rejected Jesus. Everybody around them were the ones that were saying, crucify him, crucify him. Even within their midst were people that said, crucify him, crucify him. And, and, and they're in this world, but then they're not of this world. And when they were not of this world, and then they went out and engaged other people, people were being added to their numbers every day. It says day by day, people were being added to their numbers. Now, these are the things that we can see from a plain reading of Acts 2. You know, they were, in the word, they were in the Word of God. They fellowshiped. They prayed. They practiced generosity. They worshiped Him. They evangelized. It's, it's plain to see. We can see. When we read this, we can see it. And as a church, we need to be walking in these things. However, I believe there's a few more lessons that are hidden in these verses, and you can't see it at face value. And the first one comes from verse 43. It says, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Mm -hmm. And that word is also translated in Greek as fear or reverence. And the apostles were preaching and teaching, and the preaching was bringing reverence and awe, and even the and fear in people that heard it is because it was accompanied by signs and wonders. And this verse reminds me of a verse from the book of Mark, Mark 1, 27. Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit, and it says, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. When Jesus spoke, he spoke with authority, because he had authority. It was from the Father, amen? When Jesus said, Be healed, people were healed. And throughout the gospel, he teaches his disciples about the, this authority by actually giving him this authority. I want to read to you. Matthew 10, 1. And he gave to him his 12 disciples. He, he gave, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority. Other, other, I think the King James translates this as power, but, but it also it means authority. Okay? In the ESV, it translates as authority. It says, it says, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Mark 3, 14, 15. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Mark 6, 7. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over all unclean spirits. Mark 9, 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Mark 10, 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Mm -hmm. Throughout his ministry, he was teaching them about this authority by actually giving it to them. 
And finally, after Jesus is crucified, he's dead. He rises from the dead and he sees his disciples. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. Therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of, and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. He's passing that authority on. He's saying, I got all the authority. And he's not saying, I have all the authority and I, I'm just going to keep it. Bye. No, he's saying, I have all the authority. Now go. Because it's, it's, it, if you believe in me, if your faith is in me, if I'm in you, man, when you go, you're going to go with my authority. I'm passing it to you. I'm passing it to the church. This authority that I have is, is for you. It's for the church. And here in Acts, we see the apostles exercising that authority. And brothers and sisters, we have to know that as a spirit-filled church, we have authority. We have that authority. We have the authority to heal. We have the authority to walk, to, to walk in miracles, signs, and wonders. We have the authority to bring life into situations, healing, to bring revival and breakthrough. We have the authority. And not only do we have to know that we have it, but we have to actually exercise that authority. I believe that the difference between a church that knows about authority and not is the difference between a defensive church and an offensive church. Have you seen a defensive church? If you take a, a close look at a defense in church, their goal is to keep their congregation from sinning. Uh-huh. Yeah. Protecting them, yeah. their church members, That's from the good. works, the schemes of the enemy. But an uh, offensive church, an offensive church, <laughs> is one that stands on the authority that God gave them. That it has to bring, that he has authority to bring healing, deliverance, and breakthrough for their congregation. They don't stop there. They, they exercise their authority to raise up Mighty men and women, warriors. You know, it says that, that, that the, the, the apostles, the teachers, the, the pastors, they're all for what? To do the work of the ministry? No, to raise up saints for the work of the ministry. And they have that authority. Equipped with the Holy Spirit that, that these men, that they're being raised up, stand on the authority and they go possess the gates of the enemy. Can I get an Amen. I don't know about you, but I, I don't want. But I want to be a part of an offensive church, an offensive church, with some really offensive pastors. We have to know and exercise our authority. <laughs> I love babies. <laughs> it's okay. Oh no 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 no! It's okay. I love, I, love, I love babies. The first church, when we look at it again, another thing that the first church was walking in can be found in this whole passage. When you read it again, I'm going to read it to you again. Okay. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to breaking of bread and prayer. And all came upon every soul and, and many wonders and signs were being done uh, through the apostles. And all who believed were together. And had all things in common. And they were selling their possession and belongings. And distributing the, the, the proceeds to all and any who had need. And day by day, attending in temple together. Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. And when I read this, I see a church that's filled with joy. The first church was marked by joy. When I see this, I see joy. Meeting every day, man, they got to be filled with joy if they're going to meet every day. <laughs> Selling their possessions, giving it to man, you got to be filled with joy. Me selling my car and, and paying for, for, Mar- for uh, Anthony's like, new shoes. I got to be joy in my heart. But they had this joy. They were doing all of these things together. And they were together and, and, and in, it, interwoven throughout all of their activities. And what they were doing was this joy. Mm-hmm. We see it when we read it. Yeah. They are filled with joy. The joy of the Lord was their strength. Mm. And it wasn't just their strength. It was their weapon. Ah, it was yeah. their tool. Yeah, that's true. The spirit-filled church is marked by joy. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstance. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, for the church. You know, brothers and sisters, I know there were a lot of, I had a lot of points to my sermons today. But what I'm trying to get at is that you all are to be living this out in your lives Mm -hmm. as a reflection of what the church is all about. Because the church is not this building right here. If you think that this is your, this is a church, you're mistaken. Before it was a, before it was our sanctuary, it was a, as a company that sold red bean paste. (laughs) It was called the pot. And when we, move, when we outgrow this sanctuary and we move on to a bigger place, this place might become a Nodeban. <laughs> These walls are not the church. This ceiling, this floor is not the church. A church is not made up by programs. A church is not made up by events. This church is made up of living stones. You and I, we make up the church. And it's when these living stones come, come together around the chief cornerstone which is Jesus Christ our Lord, and we live out what we are called to be as his bride, is then when you find the true church. We've got to manifest this in our personal lives. Mm -hmm. This has to be manifested upon you, each and every one of you. We can't expect these walls to do the talking for us. Mm -hmm. We can't expect programs and events to do the talking for us. But the lives, the living stones that are represented in this congregation, you guys are the church. And you guys are... To walk and manifest what the bride of Christ is supposed to be, to be the church. And I want to close with this. I want to close with this. It says in Acts 2, 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to breaking of bread and the prayer. It also says, it also says day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now, breaking bread can mean two things. And, and people say that some of them, it's just the way that people ate. Back then, they broke bread before meat. Okay? And before a meal, they would break their bread. Others say that breaking bread refers to the Lord's Supper. And it, it, the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Jesus. And I like to think that it was both. That as they gathered, as they studied and preached the word of God, as they met in fellowship, as they prayed, as they practiced generosity and love, as they worshipped and praised the Lord together, as they went out and evangelized, they would come together for a meal. And at their meal, they would break bread in remembrance of Jesus Christ. Of Jesus, who, who He is. 
And they would drink their wine and remember what he did. And as they continued to remember Jesus, their Lord and Savior, it was at these moments that they found their identity, their purpose, and their calling. Now, as a spirit-filled church, we can never take our eyes off of Jesus Christ. Breaking of that bread, drinking of that wine, his body and the blood, that has to be the center of our theology. That has to be the center of who we are. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That is what a spirit-filled church is to walk in. Let's pray. I want us to all stand up. I want us to close with a praise song. And do what the first church was doing. They were worshiping and they were praising the Lord. And as we finish this sermon, I want us to go into a time of, of, of worship where we're giving God everything, what He deserves. We're worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. And as we connect, it's not because He needs it, it's because we need it. We need this connection. We need the presence of God in our lives. So let's, let's praise Him. Let's worship Him. Let's exalt Him.